As most of you know, I took uh, a good chunk of time off this summer for renewal leave. Uh, in my mind, is, is a way to get off of the treadmill that sometimes feels like it's moving so fast you lose track of what's really important and what's foundational and sort of basic in life. And I'm sure you can relate, right? Like life just gets so complicated and quickly multifaceted bills to pay and, and work to do, relationships to manage, and a never-ending list of things to do, no matter how many things you check off the list. I know that students, especially as I've got two teenagers now, um, you are at the stage of life where there's, there's activities and friendships and school dynamics and tests, and then as the older you get, there's the lingering existential questions and pressure of, who am I supposed to be in the world, and where is my place, and what's my vocation, and sorry to spoil this, but that never ends. At every stage of life, there are new sets of challenges, new thresholds of growth and change, issues with our health and our bodies, interactions with the greater political world, and, and, and environmental issues, and the list goes on. Life is complicated. And it can feel like a treadmill that's going too fast. And that's why I think it's important to periodically get back to basics. To be reminded of what is essential and elemental and foundational in life. So let's get back to basics for a minute. Remember what life is all about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and human beings, and he declared it all very good. God gave humans, men and women, humans of all ethnicities, size and shape and abilities, gave humans the dignity of being made in his image to steward, to care for, to cultivate all that he has made. Not just to care for it as it was, wild and sprawling, but to cultivate to tame with creative ingenuity and beauty and purpose and wisdom. From this impulse, we are called to vocation. Farmers, engineers, policymakers, those who carry out the policies, teachers and healers, thinkers and builders, artists and accountants, we are to live for the glory of God. And at our most foundational, we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love God and love neighbor. And of course, that means loving our neighborhood, not just the specific boundaries like Columbia, Leonard Street, Cornwall, York, not just the specific boundaries but the neighborhood in the sense of the whole created natural, built, political, social, economic environment. Why does that matter? Because our places and our policies and our structures and economics all reflect what we think about God and how we treat fellow human beings, our neighbors. Love God, love neighbors, back to basics. Now tonight, we find ourselves back in the book of Jonah. And on the surface, Jonah seems to be this fantastical tale of a renegade prophet, perilous storms, and of course a giant fish that 
eats him up, and as the kids like to remind me, also pukes him out. And that's exciting and cool. How could it possibly, though, a story like that speak to us today and help us get back to basics? How can it help us to love God and love neighbor? Well, two weeks ago, we explored the first uh, couple verses of Jonah, and we discovered this theme of resistance to God, resistance to his love. And we were encouraged by getting back to the basic truth that even though we are called to love God with all we are, it is God who is faithful to love you and me, no matter how faithless we are, no matter what our thoughts are, no matter what our faith level is at or isn't, no matter our righteousness or our moral failure, if we love God, it is because he first loved us. And that's very good news. Then last week, we explored further God's faithfulness to us, even when we're reaping the stormy consequences of our failures uh, and our human tendency to mess things up. We got back to basics with the reminder of just how faithful God is, not only to Jonah, but to all of creation as we reflected on the sacrifice and love of Jesus for us. And this week, we continue to explore Jonah, and we're going to be confronted with what it means to love our neighbors. Okay, I want us to engage in the story the best we can, and you've been hearing me say how artistic and how uh, the author of Jonah uses a lot of imagery. And so I want to encourage you to stand if you're able. And we're going to do some hand motions tonight as we read uh, the first few uh, verses of Jonah together. And you just follow my lead. I'm going to try this out. I'm not a big hand motion guy. Um, I've, I've bolded out the, the, the words that we're going to emphasize here. So that we're going to do things like arise. You know, we'll put our hands up like this. And when we get down, we're going to go like this. Uh, when we see the word great, which we're going to see a lot, it's the Hebrew word gadol, it will go like this. And then twice, you're going to have that word hurl. We'll do like a football throw or like a spear. Okay. Not, not that, not hurl, like puking. That's another word. Okay. So let's read together. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up, turn sideways, to flee, come on, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa and found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they hurled the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up! Thank you, I lost my spot. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? 
What is your country and from what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became greatly frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Lord, would you open up this word to us tonight, speaking to us what you need us to hear and giving us the courage to obey what you reveal. Amen. You may be seated. So Jonah is in a storm on a ship, captained and crewed by non-Hebrew people. This is a, we might call them pagans. They were polytheistic. They worshiped other gods and goddesses, and they were not followers of Yahweh. They were not in the covenant people of Israel. And Jonah is on this ship of non-Israelites because... God called him to go to a different group of non-Israelites, people of Assyria in Nineveh. In Jonah's mind, the captain and the crew and the Ninevites were all not his neighbors. And therefore, they were not his problem. How could that be? Jonah was a prophet of God who should have known the scriptures, who should have known that God is the same God who made every human being in his image, and therefore everybody is a neighbor. What was it about Jonah's heart and his worldview that made him so callous to the condition of other people who are different from himself? Now from here on out, I'm going to explore three ways that Jonah teaches us how to be good neighbors by being a bad neighbor. And I'm just going to list them for you here in the beginning in case you're a list taker and you're like, I want to catch these three points. I'll eventually nuance them out, but if you just need to know what they are, here they are. Know your identity. First one, know your identity. Intentionally look for the good in others intentionally look for the good in others and share what you have. Share what you have. Jonah has an identity problem. See, in reality, Jonah is a human being made in God's image, called by God to be his prophet, and called to love his neighbor as himself. That's who Jonah really is. But in practice, Jonah has chosen a different identity. As I mentioned in week one of our sermon series, the book of Jonah is situated in the the company of a bunch of other short prophetic books called the Minor Prophets. And you, you might know some of these names, Joel and Amos and Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, these types of books, Jonah's in that section of the scriptures. And what's interesting is that all of these other prophets speak the word of God to Israelites and against Israelites. Let me say that again. All of those prophets spoke the word of God to Israelites against Israelites, meaning he was saying, 
you've got to wake up. Because God called us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and you're not doing that well. You're in unjust. You don't show mercy to the stranger. You're not caring for the orphans and the widows. Okay? These are what most of the minor prophets are saying to Israel. God sends them to wake people up. Jonah is the only prophet who does not do this. In the book of 2 Kings, Jonah is a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II, whom we know from the Bible was a wicked king who led Israel astray from following the way of God. Jonah supported the ways of King Jeroboam, and he particularly supported the king's decisions to expand his kingdom with use of military power at the expense of their citizens, because someone's got to fight in all those wars, and at the expense of whatever neighboring tribes and countries and neighbors stood in their way. Jeroboam was on a personal kick to make Israel great at the expense of ethics and at the cost of breaking faithfulness with God. Jeroboam is a king you might call a nationalist. He put economic and military security of his nation before things like righteousness and justice and faithfulness to God. And Jonah supported the king in those initiatives. Jonah was a nationalist first and a prophet of God second. When the crew of the ship in this storm asked Jonah, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Notice the order of those questions. What is your occupation? That's the first thing they ask. The country question is the last thing they ask. They're really asking Jonah about his identity. They ask him, what defines you? What are you about? What is most important to you? What God do you serve? And it is telling that Jonah answers them by answering the last part of their question first. He doesn't find his main identity in being a prophet of God. He finds his main identity in being a Hebrew and being an Israelite. He puts his relationship to his nation before his relationship to God and his calling. Now, why does that matter? Because by being a nationalist, he gives himself permission to see anyone outside of his nation as other, as unworthy of his time and his resources and his love. Let's let that soak in a minute. Before we get too hard on Jonah, let's just ask ourselves the question, who am I? What am I about? Where do I ground my identity and my sense of worth? I mean, I know we're all in church right now. We're all in church right now. And I'm sure that many of us have professed faith in God and trust in Jesus. We sing songs about being God's beloved. But when it comes down to it, most of us, at least functionally, most of us find our identity in things like our work, 
our circle of friends and our physical appearance and our national identity and our political party. We find our, our sense of belonging and worth and value in lots of other things. What are we about? If you're a follower of Jesus, you might say you're about following Jesus and reflecting his kingdom on earth, but our actions and our true devotion might be different. We might profess allegiance to Jesus and truly mean it while actually living for our own pleasure or our own security or our own ambition, our own prosperity, our own family, our own circle of friends, even at the expense of other people. I'm not saying that to shame us. I'm just naming reality. We do this. Jonah is closed off from loving his neighbors because he's defined his neighbors by his own narrow view and his own narrow vision. But God, the real hero of the story, expands those boundaries. He shows us that our neighbors are not only the people just like us who fit into our personal plans, but they're even the dreaded Assyrians and a ship full of pagans. The only way we're going to grow to expand our boundaries of the neighborhood, so to speak, is to embrace our identity as humans created by God, called by God, and redeemed by God. Because when we embrace that reality, it is on the one hand more dignifying than anything we could accomplish at school or accomplish at work or, 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 or in politics or in athletics. It's more dignifying than all of those things than all of our degrees and accomplishments. And at the same time, the other hand, it's humbling because every other person you'll ever meet is also made in the image of God. That first way to become a good neighbor is to embrace our identity as made in God's image and beloved and to recognize that image in other people. Second, we can grow in being good neighbors by intentionally looking for the good in other people. Notice I said intentionally looking for the good in others because looking for the good in others is not a human strong suit. It's not a human strong suit. Anthropologists, sociologists, and psychologists all tend to agree that human beings are intensely tribal. We just are. Biologists suggest that we are genetically predisposed to noticing differences in other people before we notice similarities. Many suggest these, uh, there's reasons for these traits, positing that's an ingrained survival instinct so that in tribal days we could notice friend from foe quickly. But whatever the reason, it is something we need to address with intention. Earlier we heard the parable of the Good Samaritan read by God himself. No, skin, Jeremy. Uh, thank you for reading. Uh, if you were to ask a first century Jewish person, who would be the more likely righteous person? Uh, who would be the more likely faithful uh, to God person? Would it be a priest of God or would it be a Samaritan? You wouldn't even take a, a second to answer that question if you're a first century Jew. Of course, it would be the Jewish person because Samaritans were thought to be inferior in every way from their bloodline tainted through years of marriage outside of Israel to their theological differences, which were like, from our perspective, off. They were weird. 
But in the parable, it's actually the Samaritan traveler, traveler who shows what it means to be a good neighbor. The Jewish priest and the Levite both leave a fellow Jewish man on the side of the road as good as dead. But the Samaritan, the guy with the wrong theology and the wrong family lineage, the Samaritan is the one who acts more godly, who is a better neighbor. If you were to ask a group of religious people who follow God, who would be most likely to be a good neighbor on a ship that had a prophet of God and a bunch of pagans on it, you'd probably put your money on the prophet of God. But here we see the pagan captain and the sailors acting more faithfully. They might pray to other gods, but at least they're praying at all. And not only that, they encourage the prophet to pray to his God. They don't discriminate against him. They're like, hey, what you got? Maybe your God can help us out because ours aren't doing it. They're honest, at least. They encourage Jonah to care. They are in every way more loving and care more about life, care more about each other than Jonah does. And while this is shocking, it shouldn't surprise us that people who don't follow God often lead the way in kindness and compassion, in artistic design, in good policy, in stewardship of creation. After all, every single human being is made in God's image. Every single human being has incredible capacity to reflect the image of God into the world. I am in no way saying that good theology doesn't matter. I am in no way saying that Jesus is not the way of knowing God completely. He is the way, the truth, and the life. This isn't saying that all roads lead to the same place. But what I am saying is that there is a lot to love about our neighbors. Even those who look quite different even those who have different religious views, who have frustrating politics, who might possibly think that they're rejecting Jesus. The call for followers of Jesus is to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Back to basics, remember? If ever we're confused, let's get back to basics. And sometimes we make it so complicated by thinking if we see good in other people who don't follow Jesus, we'll be disappointing God somehow, or we'll be enabling sinful behavior or some other hang-up that we have. I've heard a lot of these. I've thought a lot of these. And if you're with me on that, yeah, I mean, just own the guilt. <laughs> it's weird. It's complicated. God's call to love our neighbors does not include a mandate to change people. That's the Spirit's job. God's call on us to love our neighbors does not include a mandate to condemn people. That's God's job to sort all that out. God's call on your life and mine to love our neighbors means that we are certainly not called to ignore people's pain and peril like Jonah did. What person, what group of people in your life are particularly difficult 
to love as neighbors. How might we ask for the help of Jesus to see whatever good we can see in them? So the story of Jonah can help us learn to love our neighbors by encouraging us to find our core identity and the love of God and to intentionally look for the good in other people. The third way that Jonah can teach us is by sharing what we have. Sharing what we have with other people is a certain way of getting back to basics because sharing what we have both honors the great commandment to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It is the sure way to get back to basics. Every single one of us, whether we are wealthy materially or poor materially, uh, wealthy relationally or poor relationally, influential or seemingly anonymous, we are all stewards of God's resources. Humans, Christianly speaking, don't actually own anything. We are to honor God by using our resources as a blessing. And one of the ways we can most be a blessing is by loving our neighbors, by sharing what God has entrusted to us. What how does the saying go? A rising tide lifts all boats. When we help our neighbors, when we care for the poor, when we heal the sick, when we advocate for affordable housing, when we receive the refugee and the foreigner with compassion and hospitality, when we help make sure that the elderly are well cared for and the young have what they need to thrive, we're not only doing the right thing, good boy, you know, we're not just doing the right thing, we're blessing our whole community for generations to come. There are probably thousands of creative ways we could talk about sharing resources. But this is a sermon, none of us want to be here all night, so I'm going to list just kind of four main categories. And you can use your own creativity to to kind of riff off that on your own. But the, the first of the four is material resources, right? Like obviously material things like including finances, including possessions. We can give and share as we are able with what God has entrusted us, which is all kinds of different levels. It's not all the same. Children learn to share their toys, or at least we try and get them to share their toys, right? And grown-ups can keep on learning by sharing our big toys, right? Cars and tools and homes and finances. And I just, as I say those things and I look at this community, I, I'm just so you're such a good example to me because I see people who share their homes. I've seen, I, I know there's been car swapping when someone's cars in the shop are totaled or they need, yeah, I, we love each other. We help each other. Let, let's consider how we can grow in that, not just within our church community, but outside the walls of our community. The second thing is we can also share influence. Yeah, so much of human thriving comes from who you know. Who you know opens the door to opportunities. You can take two people with the same exact intellect and and abilities, but if one has opportunities, knows the right people, up they go. And if the other person doesn't have that same influential person in their life, it's really, really difficult. 
That's how the world works. It's who you know, networking. Um, it's not enough for a person to be smart or motivated. They need opportunity. And so I wonder how you and I, how we could leverage our privilege, our position, our relationships to help connect other people to opportunities. You know, another way we have influence is because we live in a democracy. So we have influence in the way we vote and the policies we support and advocate for. I would say a couple of things. One is, I think it's dangerous and ill-advised. That's as nicely as I'm going to get on that. I think it's dangerous and ill-advised to marry your commitment to Jesus with a particular political party. Okay? Because then you've got to own every single thing that that political party does and say that that's what Jesus would like. I haven't met a political party that's all Jesus all the time. Right? So that's a dangerous thing to do for a Christian. But we also can't disengage from the world around us. This, this is what we learn about what Jonah does. Don't do what Jonah does. He's in a storm. It's his fault. He knows this. I'm just going to go sleep it off in the belly of this boat while everyone else suffers. That's also not the call of the Christian. Uh, we've been given the resource of voice and vote, and we should steward that wisely with a view toward loving our neighbors as ourselves. And not all people have resources of much wealth or influence. But the third thing is, is that we have abilities, don't we? Well, some of you might not think that, but yes, you do. Uh, how might we be good neighbors with our skills or our abilities? Maybe you have the ability to fix a car or do home repair projects or cook a good meal or some other useful skill. What a gift you are and could be to other people. And the fourth thing that we have to share is the gospel, the good news about who God is, about how much he's loved you and how much he loves your neighbors. You know, the good news of Jesus, who is caring and compassionate, forgiving, who promises to grant us new life now and eternal life in the new creation. But you know, sharing the gospel of Jesus isn't just about evangelism. I don't know how many of you thought when I was just saying that thing about the resource you have to share is the gospel. How many of you immediately thought about, oh, he's talking about us telling people about how to be saved. That might be part of it. That is a huge part of it. But that's not the 100% what sharing the gospel means. We can share our faith resources by asking the God of the universe to intervene in the vast areas of need that affect our world and affect our neighbors. Tim Keller notes that Jonah's private faith was of no public good. I'll quote him again. Jonah's private faith was of no public good. Here's the prophet of God, his private faith. He knows all about Yahweh. He knows Yahweh's chasing him down. It does no one any good while he's asleep on his bed in the belly of a boat that's about to break up. I think that's how a lot of us live. It's like we just have this private faith. We do our church thing on Sunday, and then we just sort of shuffle around. Having a public faith doesn't mean that we're always hanging out tracks and telling people they're going to hell and all this kind of weird cliches. It means, hey, what would it look like to pray for my neighbors? What would it look like to pray for the state of our world? What would it look like to even have the courage uh, to, to pray with a neighbor or to say, I am praying for you, and to really do it? 
And this is a resource we have. The ear of the living God listens to you. You have a relationship with him. That's fantastic. That's a massive resource. What good news that we have a God who cares for us, who cares for our neighbors, who loves all of creation. By his grace, we can come to know ourselves and to know our neighbors as God's beloved. With the eyes of Jesus, may we see the good in other people. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we come to view our resources as tools in the service of God and our neighbors. Amen.